Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Hey, Dad, what's going on? What's going on? How's your week been? Uh, my week was good, but I will admit that I have been overwhelmed with data. Seriously. So I, you know, got settled into Illinois. You know, I started working on my dissertation. I'm like, you know, I got to analyze this data. And it's just, it's so much. I have too much. And I'm trying to figure out, you know, how to get it all just organized. Um, but I can say I have been really motivated. Like I'm a, I'm a night owl. I'll stay up to three, four, five o'clock in the morning, uh, wake up really late. And it takes like a special something to motivate me to wake up at like seven, eight o'clock in the morning to start working. And the fact that I'm willing to do that for my dissertation says, you know, I might be in the right field, you know? Uh, that's good. Yeah. It's good to be motivated. I mean, you should be all the work you put in, you know, to get this information. And um, I think, you know, what probably motivates you is the fact that you were, you did qualitative research where you actually, you know, you got this data from actual people that you saw eye to eye mm-hmm. and heard their stories and, you know, and you've seen the difference it can make. So I think that also has that extra motivation is like, you know, I'm not just doing this for myself, you know, yeah. um, the story behind this that I want to be told and told in the right way. So it does add that extra little bit of motivation for sure. Uh, agreed. And I also thought I want to graduate. I just realized that me and one other person are like the last two people left in our Purdue cohort uh, that haven't gotten their PhD. So I'm, like, I'm trying to graduate. Trying to get out of there. <laughs> Ain't trying to be the last one, but they say, say the best for last. Say the best <laughs> for last. Yes, mm-hmm. How are oh, you? Man. I'm good. I'm good. Uh, you know, it's been chilling for a little bit, getting some work done. Uh, I've been preparing for, you know, this Saturday. I don't think I mentioned it on the podcast. I think I posted it, though. I'll be at the um, Afros and Audio Podcast Festival in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. um, moderating a panel on um, uh, uh, connecting that the diaspora through podcasting, mm-hmm. which would be pretty cool. Uh, so hopefully we get some good networking out there for BHD and, and, and you know, showing what we made of and, and, and present ourselves. So it'll be fun. But it's the first ever... Um, Afros and Audio Podcast Festival, and it's essentially when I talk to the owner, it's they're, what they're trying to do is create a network for Black podcasters uh, where we don't have to rely on you know the major um, podcasting networks, right? So you talk about like Spotify and iTunes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. A lot of the complaints from Black podcasters has been, you know, oh we we can't get on until we get put on by one of these bigger. Uh, entities. And so what they're trying to establish to do is like, no, let's get together, let's network, let's have this thing grow where we put each other on and not have to worry and need them, which, you know, I'm 100% behind. Um, so, yeah. so I'm excited to see how this first one goes and I'm sure it's going to get bigger and grow from there, but it's, I'm glad, you know, we can network and, and, you know, maybe build a partnership in the long term. So when they blow up, we blow up too. <laughs> I, I, I love that. Are you going to grow your afro out though? I grow my afro to, to fit the theme, afros and audio. Yeah, probably, probably the not. Yeah. 
I don't got I don't got enough uh with the, I guess patience to upkeep an afro. Uh, but didn't you didn't you start like wearing it like kind of a, a little bit grown yeah, I grew, now? I grew it out. Yeah, I stopped doing like you know the the even Caesar. Um, <laughs> kept kept a little puff at the top, but uh, yeah, a full afro. Nah, that's that's not for me. But but I'll support anybody that does it. Um, you got it. You got so y'all go to it and let y'all know how it is next week. Uh, give my little report back. Um, share my experience and, and then hopefully yeah I'm, I'm sure to grow do that put us on put us on yeah that's the goal where my phd paraphernalia you know bring my business cards be ready to network it and see where it goes but but the lineup is pretty good some pretty good black podcasters that i know and and so it'll be it'll be fun so i definitely feel the island when i get back cool all right so we got some old lord news ready to rock we do all right let's get into it hello and welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye-opening old lore news of the week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say... Okay, so did you watch the NBA Finals? Yes, I did. What'd you think? Did you, did you like? <laughs> well, I'm happy Golden State lost. Oh, me too. But not probably, you know, I'm happy they lost, but not in the fashion that they lost. But, you know, uh, to to be fair, they've won championships based off injuries before when it was LeBron and when Kyrie was hurt and Kevin Love was hurt that one year and nobody said anything. So, you know, this year was their turn. Um, but. Uh, I'm happy to see, you know, things get shaken up a little bit in the NBA. Yeah, me too. Well, in the midst of the celebration, the Raptors president, who is an African or black, I don't know if he's African-American, but he's black, um, was racially profiled as he tried to make his way to the court to celebrate the team. That was wild. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's the G, the president GM or whatever. And it's like, uh-huh. come on, how do y'all not know who this man is? Yeah. There's one black man y'all need to know. Y'all need to know who runs the team. Like, come on. Well, so, uh, you know, they're the Raptors team. So maybe it's because they were in California. Were they in California that last game? Yeah, they won in Golden State. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's crazy is that the Alameda County Sheriff's Office confirmed that they will be pursuing a misdemeanor complaint against the president of the team uh, because he, quote, shoved the officer and, you know, hit the officer. So uh, that's just crazy. That man was just trying to celebrate. You were blocking him. Um because you couldn't believe because somebody actually stated that like the officer just did not believe uh, he was the president. And even after like lots of guys with like he had his credential in his hand and even after got other guys with credentials was like, this is the you know president of or the general manager of the team still didn't believe it. And so that's kind of what it, you know, boiled down to. I mean, that's, that's, uh, man, this is, again, this is what it's like to be black people. No matter how successful you are, no matter what your credentials are, you still have the people still have that own mentality. And a lot of times with police officers, are, oh, let me see your papers, right? Are you a free mm-hmm. man? And, and I can imagine being that upset. And I, you know, I'm not mad you would push the officer. Like, <laughs> like, it's like, what else do I have to do to prove to y'all that, you know, I am a, a man, I am a person, um, yeah, that's just, just wild. And, and I can also imagine, like, he put this team together. 
he made these dramatic changes to bring to trade um, a DeRozan and bring Kawhi, fire their past coach, and it all resulted in winning the championship. They just won a championship, and now you're saying that you don't believe that I did this and that I can be on the court with the team I put together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd be furious too. Yeah. Well, hopefully that is resolved. We know he can afford some good lawyers. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that misdemeanor ain't going to stick. But, <laughs> uh, whoever the officer is should not be working in, in Oracle Arena anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure they can make that happen, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's going to pay for that decision. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, you know, speaking of, like, prosecution and stuff like that, Did you hear, so we already know that Linda Fairstein from the Central Park Five, you know, she got dragged online. She's, you know, lost a bunch of stuff. Like she's receiving her karma. Well, you know, you know how we're talking about, there were other people who contributed to that prosecution that's out here living their best life. Uh, And I mentioned Elizabeth Letterer, who is a Columbia University, like adjunct professor. Of, at the law school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, come to find out, the Black Law Student Association finally got their wishes uh, for her to, you know, go bye bye because of her role in the case because she just resigned mm. under bye-bye. the pressure. <laughs> she said, given the nature of the recent publicity generated by the Netflix portrayal of the Central Park Five case, which is interesting wording, it is best for me not to renew my teaching application. Um, so, you know, I thought that was interesting that she was like, given the publicity around the portrayal, like, no, baby, say because of my role in the Central Park Five case. So, um, but it's, it's good because when they did the documentary in 2013 or 2014, that was when the Black Law Student Association first put out a position that they wanted her to resign and, you know, et cetera. The Columbia Law School didn't really respond except for removing references from the Central Park Five case from her bio because she she was very proud of it. And she had it in her bio on the website to say, like, you know, she was the prosecutor in that case. Um, but she's gone bye bye. She finally felt the pressure of her decision. So. Mm, yeah, bye bye. Students made a difference. There's no way you can be sitting after all this, sitting up in these uh, positions, you know, still doing. And I'm glad that like this was on the campus at least recognized before even the the, the film came out, the docu series came out, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, they were already making a move to get her out of there, and it's just you know helped them out. Um, mm-hmm. That's good. It's just crazy because. So many people have Netflix or have their friends' Netflix password. So, so many people just saw this particular uh, docu-series. And, yeah. Because they said that the other one that was released in 2013 or 2014, I didn't even see that. Oh, you didn't Um, see that? Oh, okay. mm -mm. Yeah. So, it didn't get as much publicity. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't. Um, But the thing is, I first watched it on Netflix, um, as well, so that, it wasn't. On, I don't think it's on Netflix anymore, but it was on Netflix for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I first started teaching. You know, I was on Netflix looking for a documentary to show my students, and then uh, I found it on there, and then I would show it to them. I still show it to them, uh, but it's not on Netflix anymore. So I bought it on Amazon to have it, the hard copy. But it's just called the Central Park Five. Okay. Um, 
Mm-hmm. So check check it out. It, it, it's really good, and it, and it has the actual men who you know the exonerated five. It's they're interviewed throughout and telling their story, and it has what I liked about it too. It has the actual footage of them confessing and the police officers asking the questions. It has them with the, you see the letters, they read the letters, like all the actual evidence is all in that film. So that's pretty cool too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, just got two more little stories. Okay. So a former Chicago police officer decided that he wanted to be a DEA agent. In 2016, he applied for the job, but it comes to find out that his motive for moving from a cop to a DEA agent was to get inside information to help his drug trafficking friends. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's like straight out of a movie or something. You know, like yeah. somebody doing all that so they can help out the homies with their, yeah. their enterprise. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, it clearly went on for a long time because he's just now being, um, indicted for uh, conspiracy to distribute cocaine and smuggle firearms to organizations of La Organización de Nicar... I don't, you know, I don't know how to read resident, but it's a Latino drug trafficking organization, I'm guessing. Uh, But yeah, it was, you know, the enterprise was out of Puerto Rico. And seemed mm-hmm. like he smuggled a lot of money, picked up, allegedly picked up 45000 in drug money in Boston and transported it to Puerto Rico. Um, so it's just crazy. You know, yeah, I wouldn't wild. be surprised if there's a Netflix series about him in the future. Oh, there, there probably will be. It already <laughs> sounds like uh, like the movie The Departed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was my movie. Yeah, that was a great movie. It was just like that. The guy had his, had his homeboy working in the, in the precinct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so this last story is just a warning to uh, ladies and gentlemen out there. So, you know, there's like a movement toward being more natural. You know, people want to eat clean. People, you know, want to take natural supplements and etc. Well, on social media, there has been a push toward natural alternatives to traditional uh, hormone based birth control. Uh, people have been uh, advertising papaya, pomegranate, and like wild carrot as uh, alternatives to traditional birth control. And doctors are coming out to say, don't fall for the okie doke, because you will end up pregnant, ladies. No, <laughs> no. Use condoms, use spermicide. Use traditional birth control, but that do not eat papaya seeds thinking that it's going <laughs> to prevent you from getting pregnant. Okay. <laughs> yes, I'm glad. I mean, yeah, I've become, Ooh. I mean, yeah, just, just, just be careful. Don't, don't be careful with the natural stuff. Yeah. Papaya seeds. Oh, man. Yeah. Out here trying to get people caught up in the game, man. Right. They said neem oil was a natural spermicide. And lubricant. <laughs> like, oh man, y'all, y'all, it's gonna be a lot of babies out here if you're listening to this. Yeah, look at this. Some things just can't be natural yet, I and mean, we were not at that point. <laughs> Maybe one day to find, but like, you gotta, you gotta stick. Some things you gotta stick with what we know what works for the moment. Yes, so, so it's been empirically tested at least. Unless you're trying to have a baby shower. Unless you try, you try. <laughs> unless that's your goal, and you're trying to fool somebody. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, okay, that's wild. Oh, and, and another note too, be careful of, because um, people who be traveling, you know, I, I, there were people who were dying at this one resort in the Dominican Republic. Oh, um, yeah. And recently, I think what they found pretty much boiled it down to is that the, they were drinking liquor. The pretty common theme is a lot of them were drinking li- liquor from the mini fridge. Yes, room, that's what I know. And it seems that the liquor was bootleg. Mm-hmm. Uh, liquor um, and uh, some people like this uh, a forensic scientist seems like the symptoms were pretty much of that of uh, had like antifreeze in it mm. um, and so some people just be careful when you're going overseas of the liquor definitely make sure it's closed it's not bootlegged uh, whatever it is but um, the common theme with all of them was that it, it was the liquor and so they're still doing the test but that's what it seems like it's going to f- come out to be yeah, and that's also that was an issue at some like all inclusive uh, Mexican resorts in the past. People drowning after drinking uh, fake liquor and stuff like that. So you you got to be careful. But I did. I noticed that like everybody, every single last one of them, like had taken a drink out of the mini bar mm-hmm. uh, in their room, which is it's so scary. Yeah, what I think may happen, because sometimes the places like like people will steal the real ones and mm. probably replace it with the bootleg and sell the real ones, you know what I'm saying, mm-hmm. elsewhere, and so that people don't know, because uh, people really don't drink out of the mini bars too much, especially at an all-inclusive with unlimited um, yeah, liquor. like rooms. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it probably probably was like old. It probably was just like replacing it, selling the old ones. Whoever you know works there. Um, because every, yeah, every time I go to these resorts, you know, guys are always trying to hustle, you know, sell me bottles off the resort for cheaper or whatever it is. So it's, it's probably some kind of little game like that. Yeah. It just, you know, became fatal. It's just so sad. And that resort needs to get it together because people are like canceling the DR. They're like, nah. I yeah, it is that one specific resort, so see, I don't rush to cancel a tire. <laughs> I have seen people like no to DR. <laughs> yeah, it's just been the one resort, so so definitely try not to go there, possibly until they get their stuff in order. But but yeah, um, so so before we get to our topic today, I have to bring up this topic because you already mentioned um, the Exonerated Five and and the film. Um, mm-hmm. So I want to so watching that. You know, I've been noticing some things. And first, before I even get into that, I know. Have you heard about Ava DuVernay? Uh, it's not being like called being called auntie. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. She was doing an interview. I think it's called the Red Pill podcast with uh, Van Lengthen, who works at TMZ. And she pretty much was on there and saying, like, she doesn't like to be called auntie just for the simple fact she feels she's not that old. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, she said it's not a respecting to her. You call her Miss, you know, uh, Miss Ava, whoever Ava. But she's she's 46 years old. And so understandably. So I, I didn't I, I don't think of Ava as auntie, you know, people who we call auntie in the culture, people like auntie Maxine and stuff like that. Maxine Waters, people who yeah. are older. Um, and so, you know, people around her age, you know, I would call maybe big sis, you know, big cousin. Right. She, yeah. You know, that's the kind of I feel like, you know, people like Angela Rye and others, they're all in the same age group. Um, but anyway, so we can see that. But now recently on the old magazine, um, Oprah and Gail have chimed in and said that they don't like to be called uh, auntie either, um, uh, which is funny uh, in a lot of ways. But anyway, um, Oprah says, I cringe being called auntie or mom or anybody other than my nieces or by anybody other than my nieces or godchildren. But then she also says that except if she's in Africa, where it's the custom for everybody to refer to anyone as sister or auntie depending on the age difference. So it's a sign of respect in Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yet 
when people do it in America, she doesn't view that as a sign of respect. Gail also <laughs> chimed in and says she hates it because nobody calls Beyonce Auntie Beyonce. <laughs> like one, Beyonce is like 36, 37 years old, right? So there's a huge age gap as far as why people wouldn't call Beyonce Auntie, uh, but they're chiming in saying why they don't like it now. In the comments, people have been going in on both. People understand Ava's perspective, you know, saying like, yeah, they vibe with Ava, but they don't understand why. Um, Oprah and Gail are so against it, especially them chiming, you know, some of the beehive going in on Gail, like doesn't make sense. But also people are saying to to Oprah, well, how are you going to say it's okay in Africa, but not okay here in America when everybody's doing it for the same reason to show a sign of respect for the culture? Um, how you feel about how you feel about the auntie conversation before I move uh, forward? I thought it was interesting because uh, specifically Ava DuVernay mentioned I think that it is kind of like desexualizing, like it takes, you know, away, like you just put in this, like, I guess, box to where you like you're desexualized. And I guess I can see that for me, it's kind of like if somebody tells me they don't want to be called something, you know, I'll respect it, even if I think it's like weird and, you know, kind of ridiculous. It is true, you know, in African culture, everybody is like auntie. So I married into an African family and like all the kids be like hey auntie like not even auntie Daphne but it's just like auntie and you turn around like oh you talking to me Um, (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know Um, so but I don't know I don't know it's kind of like I don't know it's kind of mentioning Beyonce I think it, it sounds like it sounds like they don't want to be uh, put in the you are no longer like a viable um, woman who's like worthy of like attention other than being like a, a aunt auntie I don't know I don't know because that's what it seemed like it's turning into more of like how they are perceived in relation to like I, I don't know it, it seems like they might see it as like an ageism um, and desexualization thing rather than like a sign of respect here but yeah. I, I don't know yeah yeah I mean I can see what you're saying and I mean I, again it's it's just funny that you mention people, they mention people like Beyonce and stuff like that like to me I always took it as a sign of respect um, when people say those things, you know, you're part of the culture and and, and how it's always been. Uh, but this debate has been moving forward. Most people on social media have not, you know, really understood or have been countering um, some of their arguments, especially because of what the points they tried to make. Um, but regardless, moving forward, right, I, I think that uh, one thing I started to notice as we talked about the Central Park, did you, Central Park Five, did you get a chance to watch Oprah's interview um, with them? No, I didn't. Okay, it's on Netflix now as well. So for okay. those of you who haven't had a chance to watch it, um, it's on it's on Netflix. They posted it too. And so in there, you know, of course, she's talking to the Exonerated Five, the whole entire cast member. She brings all five on. They're having a good conversation. It's a very, very good interview, especially hearing the Exonerated Five speak um, about their experiences and seeing the actors that played them sitting right there. And it gets very emotional at times too. Um, but... One, one thing that I've been noticing, right, because um, I found it a little curious as far as why Oprah decided to all of a sudden interview um, these people at this moment in time. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, and then and then following that up, I, then I started to see when I went on social media, other people feeling the same way, right? Like these people have been exonerated since 2002, but now Oprah, you took wait until 2019 to bring them, you know, on, on your show or interview them. And as there's momentum behind this, where you could have shed light on this way earlier, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so it does beg the question, like, is she doing this for a cash grab? And, um, and then it, came, it dawned upon me, you know, I, I was looking into it and then people were talking about how Oprah in 2002, right before the Central Park jog, a few months before the Central Park, uh, not Central Park, before the Exonerated Five were exonerated, she interviewed the Central Park jogger. Um, as well. And I just found it interesting. She really didn't mention that this interview or her perspective, but in this interview, and I read it, and we can post a link to it when we post the description of the episode. Um, and I read it for myself. It's in the Oprah, uh, Oprah.com from the Oprah magazine. And, you know, in this whole interview, she's speaking as though the, the boys were, in fact, guilty. Um, and I'll read you all some of the excerpts from uh, what she was saying in it. Um, so the, the Central Park jogger, um, the woman in 2002, she, she says, after reflecting on how amazing my recovery was, I thought there's got to be something else going on here. Anything, um, an- another thing that may have helped me, my healing was that I didn't harbor resentment toward the boys who attacked me. Then Oprah says, that seems impossible to me. I harbor resentment and I just read about it in the paper. And this, the, the Central Park jogger says, well, I focused on all the positives and I realized I had seen both of the best and the worst of humanity. And Oprah said, after you were raped, sodomized, beaten with a pipe, dragged and left for dead, you can honestly say that you looked at those boys in the courtroom and harbored no resentment. Then the Central Park jogger goes on to say that she didn't, et cetera. Then they ask some other questions. Um, and then Oprah brings it back up again, right? She was like, do you think seeing the boys would trigger your memory? And the, and, uh, the jogger said, you know, I don't know for sure, but I just wanted to face them pretty much face to face. Everybody's going to be looking at me, trying to see something wrong. And I wanted to stand strong. And then she said, then she brings it up. She says, well, how did you feel about the people who turned this into a major racial confrontation? Right. And then, you know, she says, well, I just focus all my intention, attention on healing. And then uh, Oprah says, glory, hallelujah for you. And she said they had to take care of themselves. And Oprah said, well, how do you feel towards the boys today? She seriously, she said, the jogger says, I hope they turn their lives around. And then Oprah says, well, you still don't have time to be resentful. And the jogger was like, no, I wasn't resentful of the boys, but I did want them to admit that I had made a mistake. Oprah was like, do you want an apology? Um, and the Central Park judge said, yes, I want an apology. And Oprah says, do you want them to apologize to you directly? Or would it have been enough for you to feel remorse in their heart? And they said they want an Oprah apology. Um, and then Oprah says, did you ever want to ask them why you were the person they chose? And she says, no, I just felt I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, the Oprah says again, do you ever wonder how could they done have done that to me? And she's like, I have wondered that. And Oprah was like, you need to get mad. Um, you are way too balanced. And the broad jogger was like, I do get angry, but I just really saw how badly I'd been hurt. And when I was at my worst. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in this, you know, through the line of question, it's clear that Oprah feels that these guys are guilty, uh, that the Central Park jogger should be mad at them and is blaming them and wants an apology and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but this has never been mentioned. Right. Uh, and, he, and a few months after this interview, the boys were, in fact, released. Uh, but how Oprah frames it as being about racial confrontation and people turning to a race thing and not really taking the time to really critique it as others probably were during this very time period and being on the side, not to say that what happened to the Central Park jogger was 
was uh, anything that should be just overlooked, but the continuous blame. She contributed to that kind of public, you know, we put a lot of blame on somebody like Donald Trump, et cetera, who was doing it at the time. But Oprah in 2002 was also contributing to that public perception of the boys as well, right? And then it led me to think about even what Oprah and Gail have been doing as of late with Oprah and that whole Michael Jackson, um, uh, the interview on Michael Jackson from that uh, mm-hmm. documentary as well, which also came to be falsified as well. HBO said they didn't pull it, or they pulled, they didn't, they're not airing it on the show live, but they still have it up on streaming services. Oprah pulled it from her YouTube and all that kind of stuff after these discrepancies were show. Then mm-hmm. I see Gail, where her latest big interview, right, was with R. Kelly as well. Um, and I'm starting to notice this pattern of how they're like, using either black people's pain, turmoil, controversies, what have you, to profit off of mm-hmm. um, and not really contributing to the conversation of moving us further. Now, Oprah's jumping on the bandwagon, what Ava's doing. Ava's do being real activists and using her art to to make a change in people's lives, which she has done. Uh, but I'm not feeling the same or seeing the same with Oprah at the moment. And it's kind of bothering me uh, a, a few ways as well. Even with the whole Michael Jackson interview, she was even said that she she's um, has unwavering support and is in agreement to what they said against Michael. And in this case as well, you know, Michael was investigated by the federal government for years. It was a long case. Mm-hmm. Came to find out that he was innocent. And you still are saying that, you know, there was some wrongdoing done by Michael. I'm beginning to question somewhat of her loyalties or, or what she's doing here in the media. Mm-hmm. I can definitely see that, especially after the Michael Jackson uh, documentary controversy. I just have one clarifying question. When she did that interview with uh, Central Park Jogger, was it in, in the in the background of like what was happening in the media? Was it clear that they were pursuing the case to release the the uh, exonerated five? I'm not sure. Um, I know they got, res- so this <clears throat> interview took place in, um, or it was aired in April 2002. When did the boys get released? Um, I feel around 2002, uh, around that time. I'm about to look. Well, some of them were already out. Yeah, some of them, some of them were already out. Um, let me see. And um, yeah, actually, she mentioned that in the interview as well. And I think they were exonerated because one, as you saw in the film, got exonerated later. I think August, August, August 2002. 2002. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So it was shortly after. um, um, But, but, you know, even she, what bothered me that she mentioned the racial confrontations in the interview. Mm -hmm. Right. So she knew that there was a, 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 a conversation going on, a broader conversation, how these boys probably were. Uh, you know, incorrectly or um, uh, unjustly put in prison without the evidence and stuff like that. And this happened in 1989. This is 2002. I'm sure there was a whole debate about that, you know. Um, So for me, the same way I feel like, feel about the prosecutors and everybody, like if you had your hand in this, if you were in the media, you know, if you were a part of the prosecution and you were trying to like, essentially like, publicly lynch these boys or even in the background like actuals actually send them to jail then you need to apologize and if Oprah didn't do that in the interview that's kind of disappointing oh she didn't mention it at all Uh, you know she didn't mention it and you talking about the most recent interview? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. She didn't mention her role, her past interview when she interviewed the Central Park jogger Um, so it's 
I'd rather she would have done that to be like, listen, I too once thought you all were were guilty and I've learned, right? Um, yeah. You have just this on a document. It. Yeah, <laughs> you just ignored it, which is um, problematic, you know, uh, um, as well. And so this is what makes it even look worse where you're not even getting ahead of it because people are going to pull this up and people have pulled it up. And now I'm starting to see more conversation about her role um, with this interview. Um, and I think, you know, noticing because I think Oprah has a history with um, um sexual violence as well in her past mm -hmm. and so even things like michael jackson and we're hearing like with r kelly with with gail and this with the central park jogger um she clearly um may because of her history may not be able to um i don't know may, she may be biased in her interviews you know what i'm saying going in because of her experiences and and is always usually going to support the victim more than anything else, which is fine, right? Mm -hmm. But I think you have to acknowledge that because in these cases, and, I, and what I, when I was talking to my wife about it, I was like, I would even actually prefer if I seen more um, being applied more fairly, right? Because there's people like, like uh, what's his name? Um, uh, uh, Harvey Weinstein, right? Mm -hmm. Why haven't we saw discussion about that or interviews from you. It's like most of the time, I'm just noticing it's a lot of oftentimes black, black males are usually the ones who they're using to, to throw in this limelight and, and already publicly destroy them. Yeah. And it's just, I just don't see it applied equally to other races and groups of folk. Yeah, I agree. I feel like it should be more selective. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it can't be a pattern to where you're only calling out one group. And if you do say like, I, I want to focus on black, like if that's your thing, you just got to be consistent. Like, are you someone who focuses on, you know, black news and, you know, black media be consistent. And if you are in that group, you know, call out the egregious thing. Cause I mean, that R Kelly interview was, you know, <laughs> like, oh, oh, you know, but like some of the other things is like, you can't jump on the bandwagon with everything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, I just, I think all I'm asking for is them to be uh, more critical, you know, or more introspective before, especially when it comes to black folk and what you're going to be putting out there, um, I just, you have to take more of a critical lens because what you can do can be very damaging, mm -hmm. um, especially from that interview in 2002, you were reinforcing the fact that these young five were guilty. Um, and it seems like then, which is interesting, it seems like then you were using the, the, the criminal justice system, you know, because the police and them, they said they were guilty as your your basis to use to say that they were guilty. But yeah, in Michael Jackson, where he is innocent, the same criminal justice system said he was innocent. You're not recognizing that. So mm -hmm. I'm finding this contradictions as far as how she's approaching it. And it seems like no matter what, she's always going to support, you know, the alleged victims in these situations, which, you know, is a scary thing. When you have that much power, then it's like, OK, we have to begin to critique her interviews in a way to make sure that we're not just digesting it all as fact because there is she may be leaning a particular way mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um but neither here or there i just wanted to you know vent on that because i've been noticing that that it's all happening and maybe just provide some perspective to our listeners too so you can pay attention to it but yeah we'll post the the link of uh the interview from the 2002 so you guys can read it yourselves and compare that you know we're not not making all this up <laughs> um uh, but to move forward you know we will. Today's conversation is to talk about a institution that we know for sure <laughs> has, uh, has has unwavering support for black folk. And that's black cultural centers on PWI campuses.
Texas. Uh, we talk with the director of the Purdue's Black Cultural Center, uh, director Renee Thomas, who we all at Purdue call Miss Renee. And she joined us on this episode to talk about uh, Black Cultural Centers in general, their importance and significance, and also uh, the development and history of Purdue's Black Cultural Center, which Daphne and I had um, tons of experiences because we all were students at Purdue. And, and mm -hmm. we can definitely attest to the importance of having these cultural centers on their campuses. Yes, and it's exciting because Purdue, um, the Black Cultural Center, is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. Yes, yes. So 50. it's exciting, you know, to have her on to talk about the work of the Purdue University Black Cultural Center, but also give a little context to Black Cultural Centers in general and, you know, why they emerged and why they're still relevant today. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Great interview. You guys will learn a lot from it. If you're not familiar with Black Culture Centers, definitely take a listen and, and Google or look up Purdue's Black Cultural Center. If you may be interested in maybe trying to figure out how to build one on your campus um, as well or look into that kind of stuff, um, you know, it's, it's a great center, very well resourced, and they do a lot of great events for the campus community students and community at large. So mm -hmm. without further ado, uh, we'll get Ms. Renee on and we'll catch up with y'all afterwards. Black cultural centers located primarily at predominantly white colleges and universities emerged in the 1960s and 1970s during the civil rights movement. Today, black cultural centers continue to provide students across the country with meaningful opportunities to grow as scholars and leaders in the African-American community. For today's episode, we learn more about these important institutions by interviewing Ms. Renee A. Thomas Thomas, the director of the Purdue University Black Cultural Center. Ms. Renee has over 20 years of experience in higher education administration with expertise in program development, student services, and community engagement. During our conversation, we discussed the history of and social context for which Black cultural centers emerged, myths and misconceptions about race-specific campus centers, and the continued importance of Black spaces on predominantly white campuses. Welcome, Ms. Renee. Thank you. It is such a delight to be here with you both. Oh, yeah. Glad you're here. So for those of you who might not know, um, Ty and I both went to Purdue and mm -hmm. I can just say personally, uh, the Black Cultural Center was my go-to place. It was mm -hmm. a very large part of my graduate student experience mm -hmm. at Purdue. So just very excited to um, have Ms. Renee on, but also talk about how important this is because we talk about uh student retention. We talk about student inclusion. And I would say that that was a space that made me really feel like I belonged in mm -hmm. Lafayette and at Purdue. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, that's sort of our goal and mission is to make sure that all students feel a sense of belonging on campus, a sense in which they can be affirmed as it relates to their cultural identity, and then also just promoting academic excellence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and we'll we'll definitely get into the purposes of, you know, Black cultural centers, which we call the BCC um, for our listeners. Uh, but before we do that, we want our listeners to learn a little bit more about you. So can you just you know, share with our listeners your background and what led you to the Purdue University BCC. Certainly. I uh, am originally from New Jersey and attended college at Trenton State 
Trenton State College, which is now called the College of New Jersey for my undergraduate work. And while I was at Trenton State College, I was very active in our Black Student Union on campus, very involved in terms of the African-American Studies Department program. My minor was actually uh, African-American Studies, and then uh, my major was in public administration. After I finished uh, there at Trenton State College, during my tenure there, I was also in residence life. And that's when I began to learn more about Student Affairs Division and the possibility of that becoming a a full-time professional opportunity. So I left uh, after graduation and actually went to Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, to pursue a job opportunity there in the Affirmative Action Office and Student Affairs Division. And while I was there, I was able to complete my work, graduate work, also in Student Affairs, Higher Education Administration. Uh, As I was completing uh, my academic work, I was beginning to explore some other career opportunities and honed into Black Cultural Center work because I was in multicultural student affairs, affirmative action, and really enjoyed the opportunity to work with students. So I uh, saw that there was an opportunity here at Purdue University as an assistant director and applied. And my goodness, I came here with the expectation that three to five years, I'll move on and and look for something else. And (laughs) I'm now adding a zero to that three (laughs) 30 (laughs) years this year. Uh, But it's just been a a wonderful opportunity to really have uh, tremendous impact in terms of student success and also the high quality of programs and activities that we've been able to implement. Mm, no, awesome. Awesome. You know, so, you know, we'll talk about um, uh, Purdue specifically in a second, but I guess it's good for our listeners to kind of just get a clear understanding gen- more generally of Black cultural centers. Um, so can you give them a sense of, you know, what exactly are Black cultural centers? You know, why did they emerge and kind of maybe how many are around in the country? Are there a lot of them or not? Sure. There are. Let me back up to say that Black cultural centers were founded as a result of student protest and activism on many college campuses, particularly predominantly white college campuses. In the late 1960s, uh, as part of the civil rights movement, is when we began to see large numbers of African-American students enrolling in predominantly white campuses. And large numbers is all relative, depending on (laughs) what the campus is, Um, but greater numbers, I should say, rather than large numbers, greater numbers of African-Americans having access to institutions of higher education that previously were either excluded or really did not have a welcoming environment for those students. And uh, the civil rights movement was happening all over our nation. Students were protesting on their individual campuses campuses because, like I said, they did not see anything that was reflective of their culture, nothing that was reflective of their heritage. And the students tended to not fit into the social options that were available to the majority students may not have been appealing to them. Um, And as a result of that student protest and activism, many campuses responded by creating these black cultural centers on campus. The primary purpose of the cultural centers was to create a sense of belonging, to have programs and activities that were reflective of the African-American experience. Uh, Some campuses have evolved uh, in terms of 
the cultural center becoming much more academic focused uh, in terms of providing role model mentoring relationships through the cultural centers, promoting academic success uh, through the cultural centers. And unfortunately, some have even disappeared uh, from college campuses as well. Uh, We are fortunate at Purdue and that we are very well supported by the university and actually are celebrating our 50th anniversary uh, this academic year. But it evolved as a result of student protests, students not feeling that there was representation on their campuses. And it's a little bit ironic because I think some of those same concerns are even relevant today. Absolutely. I was just thinking like, I feel like the the climate today um, is not exactly like it was, you know, I feel like we have progressed, but we are definitely back in an age of like activism and, you know, student protests and uh, students trying to get their voices out there. Exactly. Um, Congratulations on 50 years. That is amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I was just wondering if you could give our listeners a little bit of background on the history of Purdue's BCC. So you kind of gave us, you know, a history of like BCCs and in general. But can you talk a little bit more about like Purdue's history? Yes, we have a really powerful story to tell uh, here at Purdue. I'm going to talk a little bit about Purdue's history as it relates to the African-American experience and then dovetail that in to the Black Cultural Center. Uh, Purdue University graduated our first African-American student in 1894. So if you can imagine, that was just one generation removed from slavery. David Robert Lewis earned his undergraduate degree from the College of Engineering in 1894. One generation removed from slavery. He was here at Purdue University. He was the only one. Uh, so I know some of our students talk about the isolation and and the uh, discomfort they may feel on a predominantly white campus, but imagine what it must have been like for David Robert Lewis, the only African-American present on the entire campus. Um, so he graduated in 1894. And I am a real firm believer that Purdue's history is a little bit unique because we are indeed a land grant university. And I believe that part of our land grant mission is to embrace diversity and inclusion um, so that we can serve all students. The land grant mission, uh, land grant universities were founded to provide an opportunity for those who may have historically been excluded from education to be able to provide them with an education. And um, so we are fulfilling our land grant mission uh, by having these African-American students on campus. As it relates to the Black Cultural Center in general, We, too, were founded as a result of student protest and activism, and uh, we actually produced a movie, a 60-minute documentary called Black Purdue that really tells the positive narrative of the African-American experience, starting with David Robert Lewis, and then I'm going to fast forward it to 1968 after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., students here at Purdue were feeling that sense of isolation, feeling that they loved the university more than the university loved them. Uh, So they staged a silent protest. During that silent protest, they met the night before. They encouraged everyone to pick up a red brick. And if you've been on Purdue's campus, 
99% of our buildings are made out of red bricks. Uh, during that time, Purdue was under uh, construction. They didn't have the OSHA regulations that they have today, so red bricks were easily accessible. So students picked up those red bricks and they met them next morning in the union, cl- in the union building. And they staged a silent protest in which they marched in a single file from the union building to the administration building. They marched silently. And at that time period, there were less than 150 black students enrolled at Purdue. It is documented that 129 students participated in that protest. When they arrived at the administration building, which is now called Hubdy Hall, they opened their red, uh, their uh, brown paper bags and they set the bricks on the steps of Hubdy Hall and they erected a sign that said the fire next time, which was a quote by James Baldwin, who was a famous African-American author at that time period. The bricks were symbolic in a couple different ways. First, I think that um, the administration thought that it was going to be a very violent protest because they had these bricks that they were pulling out of these bags. And I think that they feared uh, the possibility of, of the students throwing the bricks through the windows of the administration building. But rather than uh, it being violent, uh, they set the bricks down in a very peaceful and a very orderly manner. And the bricks became symbolic in that rather than uh, destroying the university, they wanted to play a role in helping to build up the university, Mm. particularly in the area of diversity and inclusion. Uh, They met with the president and they had a list of demands. And one of those demands was for a black cultural center. We were what I perceive is very fortunate at Purdue and that the university administration was responsive uh, to some of those demands. They had a student ad hoc committee that met on a regular and consistent basis after that protest and our Black Cultural Center emerged here at Purdue University. Uh, When we first opened our doors in the fall of uh, 1970, uh, it was a very, very old residential house. And we stayed in that residential house until 1999 when we moved into this magnificent facility that has been designed by an African-American architectural firm. So that's sort of our history here at Purdue University. No, that's, that's great. And, you know, you know, my next question is kind of follow up for the first couple of questions we had trying to bring it into, you know, BCC's relevance, you know, today, um, you know, because currently we live in this age of multiculturalism and and but yet when we talk about like black cultural centers, Latino cultural centers, et cetera, they are race specific as opposed to saying things like multicultural centers on campuses. So why do you think it's important to have, you know, these race specific uh, cultural centers versus that kind of multicultural lingo and a broaden a, a more general approach to them? Yeah. Let me begin by saying we take a somewhat of a unique approach here at the Black Cultural Center and that we do our programming and our activities and everything from an Afrocentric perspective. We are unapologetically black in our programming. Mm-hmm. With that said, we also recognize that we have a commitment to the broader campus community to encourage them to learn more about the African-American experience. So oftentimes when we invite guest speakers and performers to the university and they know they're sponsored by the Black Cultural Center, 
some of them are surprised when they look out in the audience and it's a predominantly white audience sponsored by the Black Cultural Center. We represent uh, the demographics of the university and we really pride ourselves in educating the broader campus community as well. We do not change uh, the type of programming uh, as it relates to it being very much African-American and Afrocentric in its perspective, Uh, but we do want people to feel like they have a sense of belonging here at the Purdue Black Cultural Center, regardless of ethnic identity. To speak more directly to your question about um, why ethnic specific centers is that, you know, I believe that to some degree, the institution has failed communities of color as it relates to inclusion. And therefore, these is critical for these spaces to exist. I sometimes say that I would love to be able to work myself out of a job because the institution is so responsive to the needs of everyone that we no longer have these centers. Mm. The reality is, is that we're not there yet um, here at the university or um, in our nation. So we still have some work to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, kind of speaking of uh, work to do and also I can think about, again, my experience at Purdue and it was very typical to see students from all backgrounds coming in and out using the BCC Mm -hmm. as a study space or Mm -hmm. participating in a program. And so I have to agree with that. Uh, But I was kind of wondering along those lines, um, have you received or like heard any uh, criticisms about like there's a black cultural center? So why isn't there like a white cultural center? And have you have you heard things like that? Absolutely. I'm nodding my head. Yes. Uh, And, you know, it's odd whenever people say that, because I think that the reason why we don't have a white cultural center is because it exists in every space on the entire campus. So therefore, if you go into the union, if you go into the residence halls, if you go in, regardless of where you go, you can be affirmed as a white student on on campus. That's not always the case for our African-American students. And we really want to provide an opportunity for them to be able to not just come to Purdue University and have that I'm surviving mentality, but we want them to be able to come to Purdue and thrive at Purdue University in such a way that um, even when you walk in the doors of the Black Cultural Center, it's one of the very few places on campus where you can be guaranteed when you walk in, you are going to see people of color in leadership roles. You will see people who look like you utilizing the facility, and you will also see your culture and heritage reflected in the artwork that's on display here. You know, I, I think, um, yeah, even just talking about that and, and the BCCs, I think that that's true too. Because even when I went to, you know, I went to an HBCU, but there was never any push to be like, oh, let's have a, a black culture center because it's an HBCU. So you're right. So all the spaces were um, driven in that capacity, were Afrocentric and were for us and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's interesting when I hear in predominantly white institutions that sometimes you have that criticism. Why isn't there a, 
a white cultural center well because you're right all the spaces are predominantly um for that clientele um but so speaking of that i think you addressed some of this but i want to ask the question again is you know when it comes to black cultural centers do you think there are some either publicly or what have you uh certain myths and misconceptions of of black cultural centers I do. Um, I'm a member of the National Association of Black Cultural Centers. And earlier you asked about the number of centers on uh, campuses. And, and we find you are absolutely correct in that we exist on predominantly white campuses. You don't necessarily see a black cultural center on an HBCU campus because it is the entire campus community. Uh, but we do struggle, I think, as individual centers in terms of some of the misconceptions. Uh, the one here at Purdue University that we try to dispel uh, on an ongoing and regular basis is that if you are not a black student or a student of African descent, that the BCC is not a place that you sh can utilize or you can take advantage of. And we really uh, try to dispel that by being at a variety of orientation programs, meeting with various classes and letting them know that they can become engaged and really grow, um, particularly their artistic side. If they are uh, a student who's involved in the performing arts area, we have a really robust performing arts program here at the Black Cultural Center. Um, the other myth that we have sometimes is that uh, students sometimes have the misconception that uh, we are less than as, as a population uh, in terms of the Black experience. And we really pride ourselves in excellence here at the Black Cultural Center. We want everything to be done at such a high level of excellence that it will be a magnet to attract other students to us. That that sounds um, awesome, and I definitely feel like you are you are attracting students. Um, so you kind of mentioned some of the cultural, you know, programming like performing arts, and I just wanted to go into that a little bit more. Can you talk to us about like some of your specific programs, and also kind of maybe discuss your your favorite program or activity that you've hosted over the many years you've been at the BCC? Okay. I like to think of the Black Cultural Center sometimes as a three-legged stool in terms of our programmatic uh, agenda, and that one of those legs is our Performing Arts Ensemble Program. We have six different uh, performing arts groups here at the Black Cultural Center, and we do what I call edutainment, which is education and entertainment combined together to create the word edutainment. And I'll give you an example. We have a Black Voices of Inspiration, which is our choir. They uh, have historically been known as a gospel choir. However, they continue to evolve and present a repertoire of music from a variety of African-American composers. So they may do a little jazz, they might do a little bit of hip hop, um, and then they do lots of gospel, traditional Negro spirituals. If you were to go to a concert by the Black Voices of Inspiration, you would hear traditional Negro spirituals, but you will also have some narration of the important role that traditional Negro spirituals played in the Black experience. So you always leave a BCC Performing Arts Ensemble event being more educated about African-American culture. So we have a choir that I talked about earlier, the Black Voices of Inspiration. We have a dance troupe called the Jahari Dancers, and they're trained in a variety of 
dance styles and traditions ranging from traditional black, um, excuse me, traditional West African dance styles to all the way up to what you will see on a BET video, um, music video. So it, it's, it runs the gamut, tap, jazz, all, all of the above. We have a drama troupe, the New Directional Players, and our drama troupe is committed to presenting works by African-American playwrights. Then we have a, a, a poetry ensemble called the Haraka Writers, and those students are creative writers, not only poetry, but short stories, prose, essays. Uh, they present their original work. Uh, and then we've added a couple other ensembles. One is the Black Thought Collective. We've received some feedback from our students that, you know, if I'm not involved in the arts, how might I be a participant? regularly at the Black Cultural Center. So we develop what we call our Black Thought Collective. And those students do research about the African-American experience and present at conferences and symposiums. The other ensemble is our uh, Gordon Parks Ensemble, and that's our visual arts ensemble. They do primarily photography uh, the last couple years, but we're hoping to get expand that a little bit more in terms of other visual arts. And then the last group, that um, I'm most excited about because it just started a couple years ago. It's called the Purdue Express. And what the Purdue Express is, it's a 30-minute staged production of music, dance, poetry, drama that tells the story of the Purdue experience through an artistic show. So 30 minutes, they're on stage, they're talking about financial aid, and it's designed for prospective students to see. So we talk about financial aid, we talk about student life, we talk about the diversity experience on campus. And the goal is that these students, and, and it's very contemporary in terms of the music uh, that is selected. So we want students, every time they hear that song on the radio, they'll think of the Purdue Express because of the performance that they saw. And, and uh, we have found that it has increased our outreach efforts to the uh, broader uh, community as well. Each of those ensembles are instructed by professional artists and residents. So we have some individuals, for instance, our dance troupe, we have a choreographer that comes down from Chicago, works with the students and prepares them for their on and off campus performances. And we do... Um, we, we meet artists or students where they are. So we don't have an audition process uh, for our ensembles. What we do have is a placement process. So our artist works with those students so that whenever they're on stage performing, hopefully because of the selectivity of the choreography and that type of thing, you won't be able to tell who has 10 years of dance experience and who this is their first opportunity ever on stage. So it's a really nice way for students to really interact with each other and share their passions for the arts. Oh, no, that's that's awesome. Um, and, you know, I keep I'm wrestling with this question right now from, um, you know, when we talked about uh, myths and misconceptions and, you know, how, yeah, I think you said that sometimes um, you want to make the, the Black Culture Center an experience for everyone that can be welcome and involved. And, you know, being at Purdue, I definitely saw that and witnessed that. You know, there was always, like like Daphne said, white students in there studying or, or participating in some of the events and stuff like that. And so to our listeners, you know, I think they may have the same kind of question um, that I'm having, too, is like, how do you accomplish that? Right. I think it's a, a very um, 
a unique, I guess, a strategy in a way, because on one essence, I feel like, you know, it is a, it is a safe space for students of color to come in and, and be themselves and study or whatever fellowship. Um, and then sometimes having that safe space uh, when, you know, if, if, if it's white students coming in, sometimes they might feel threatened, right, or become territorial um, in that way. And I'm sure you train your staff, you know, to be prepared for that kind of stuff. But how do you how do you accomplish that? Because I think you guys do a good job at doing that. And I think um, I think I just didn't want to blow by that question. Maybe there's certain yes. strategies you use or approach you do to make sure that it is a welcoming space while still making sure that the students of color, which are spaces for, still feel like it's their space and not being kind of invaded in a sense. Mm-hmm. It's a very delicate balance, a very delicate balance. And part of it is, yes, uh, staff training. We have about 30 students who are employed on a part time basis here at the center. And one of the things that we want everyone who walks in the door to feel welcomed and embraced uh, and that we train our students to that whenever a new face walks through the door, you need to say hello, welcome to the Black Cultural Center. Is this your first time? And if it is, offer to conduct a tour for them so that and it's surprising for me because I get feedback from some campus administrators to say, you know, the Black Cultural Center is one of the friendliest places on campus. Every time I go there, the students are very uh positive. They're always very helpful, that type of thing. So it's part of our, a part of that is our training. And then also we want to have a space in which students can quote unquote, hang out and be themselves and be comfortable being themselves because on many predominantly white campuses, what you do is you wear the mask uh, when you go to class or what have you. Mm -hmm. We want people to be able to take that mask off when they're here at the Black Cultural Center. And it's unique because I think that those students who are not African-American that uh, patronize and and, and are, are participants in our activities, for whatever reason, I think that they are um, – I'm having a hard time articulating this – but they are receptive to – providing that necessary space for students to just be themselves. It, mm-hmm. It's it's hard to put into words, mm-hmm. uh, but it does happen. Uh, and then the other thing I think that happens is I didn't talk about it earlier because uh, I talk so much about the performing arts ensembles, but we also have a wonderful calendar of events in which we call our cultural arts series in which we invite guest speakers and performers to the university for public lectures and presentations. And I think that for some of our um, non-African-American students, that's their first exposure to the BCC uh, is to hear a, a Spike Lee, filmmaker Spike Lee, come on campus and talk. Or when mm-hmm. Maya Angelou uh, was was alive, she, she graced our campus several times as well. And I think mm-hmm. that those experiences provide a unique way in which students had their initial introduction to the Black Cultural Center. And then finally, the library is what I call that third stool, the performing arts ensembles, our calendar of events, the cultural arts series in the library. And some students use the library for just studying. And then some of them use it because they just want to be surrounded by all the knowledge that exists there um, in the library. But I, I'm struggling. I know I haven't fully <laughs> answered your question, oh, no. um, but, it, but it happens very organically, but also intentionally here. Mm-hmm. No, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was wondering, what advice would you have to 
students who are on a predominantly white campus who would like to create a space of belonging, maybe they don't have a BCC, what advice would you have for them about maybe starting one? Are there any, you know, beginning steps? Are BCCs still, you know, being created, you know, to this day? And like, what advice would you have about starting that process? Yeah, I think that uh, my my first piece of advice would be that it's a journey. It doesn't just happen overnight. And I know sometimes we get uh, representatives from other college campuses and universities visiting the Black Cultural Center because we are a benchmark model for many centers all over the country. We've probably had hmm, 30, 40, 50 campuses come to Purdue with delegations to say, how do you all do it? And how do you do it so successfully? And I think that Sometimes people want a, a quick fix, and that's not the case. It's a journey. Uh, it takes a, a time and commitment, and that it should not just be a student-initiated um, endeavor because students graduate, students leave the university, and sometimes that vision leaves with those students there needs to be an institutional commitment. And that's where I would say that I would encourage individuals to focus their energy and how might the institution make a commitment to this type of, whether it's a center, whether it's a department or, or however it may emerge. And there are different needs on different campuses as well. I mean, we have found that here at Purdue, the Performing Arts Ensemble program serves us very well, uh, but we also have many tentacles. Uh, we really want to align ourselves with the academic mission of the university. And we do that through our research tours, through our study abroad programs. We're partnering with academic units on campus. And to see the center is being fully um, part of the university fabric as opposed to on the margins and, oh, they do their thing over there. No, we need to be fully integrated into the fabric of the institution. That's now that's that's an uh, important step. So I'm sure, you know, people, I'm glad you invite people in uh, from other campuses to learn and figure out, you know, how maybe they can contribute to their own campus because I think it is a necessary thing still to this day, as we alluded to earlier in the interview. Um, but beyond that, you know, those are a lot of the questions we had. Is there anything else that, you know, we didn't discuss or touch upon that you think is important to share for our listeners? I think you guys did a marvelous job uh, <laughs> with the questions that you had. The only other thing that I would add is that as part of our 50th anniversary celebration, we were just recently honored uh, by the National Trust Foundation as a distinctive destination um, nationwide. We were uh, the, I think it was the second or the third site in the state of Indiana and one of the first 50 sites that have been identified with this national designation. So uh, we're hopeful that as a result of that uh, distinctive destination, distinctive destination designation, <laughs> we will continue to have uh, more people participate and become involved. And um, the community outreach is the effort that I haven't really uh, talked about, but we do a lot of community engagement activities uh, here locally in which we invite uh, the local school systems to our campus to participate in a variety of activities here at the Black Cultural Center. So we are not only servicing our college students, but also the youth in the community and the academic partnerships we have with various units. 
Okay. Well, congratulations on the distinctive destination. If you see pictures of the BCC, it looks beautiful. And then when you think about all of the programming uh, that it has, I would agree that it definitely deserves that distinction. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. So how can our listeners find out more about the BCC, um, your work, some of the programming, et cetera? Sure. Uh, We have a website and it is www.purdue.edu and then black backslash BCC for Black Cultural Center. And uh, we have our information up on the website. Uh, As I said earlier, this is a special year and that we're celebrating our 50th anniversary. Uh, We have a huge celebration coming up at the end of this month and uh, we'll continue to celebrate throughout the fall semester as well. Excellent. And yeah, for any of our listeners ever in the the Purdue area, definitely check out the BCC because it's a really, um, really great center and a good experience, you know, even to the breakdown of the architecture and stuff like that. I'm not going to give it all away because I want you to experience it yourself whenever you do visit. But the doors and the desk and how things are intentional um, with the setup there is is pretty phenomenal as well. So so um, um, Miss Renee, we thank you for taking the time to come chat with us and share with our listeners about the Black Cultural Centers and all they mean to us and, you know, universities at large and the students of color and these universities, um, I think it's still a very important and significant contribution to to what we need in these spaces. So, so thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Appreciate it. It's good to talk to both of you. Oh, yeah. I know. Um, <laughs> I'm actually going to look at my calendar to see if I can come to that uh, celebration or because, yeah. Wonderful. We would love to have you back. We're expecting about 250 folks to come back for the June Jubilee celebration. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, well thank you, Miss Renee. Thank you. Hey, Dad, so what you think about Miss Renee coming on and talk about, uh, you know, the Black Cultural Centers and stuff like that? How you feeling? Honestly, it brought back so many memories from my years at Purdue, and it made me realize, like, dang, the BCC was a huge part of my graduate school experience there. Mm-hmm. It would not have been the same if the BCC wasn't there. So I participated in uh, Black Voices of Inspiration. I went on the research tour to Detroit and even participated participated in the play musical that we did about Detroit. Like, I don't know if you remember that, but like we had to dress up like the 60s and I had mm-hmm. like, gloves. Um, <laughs> I participated in the Black Thought Collective. Um, so we went to the the Black Studies Conference. Um, and all of this was, you know, paid for by the center. I missed that on the Ghana trip, which I'm kind of disappointed about, but I'm just like, wow, like the BCC was just like a huge part of my experience and I'm so thankful for it. Yeah, you know, I think, um, I, yeah, I'm just like even listening to Miss Renee talk and, and reminiscing about the Purdue Black Cultural Center. It was like, you, you kind of like don't really know what you have until it's gone. You know that saying? And because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I went to an HBCU where that was just not a worry. Mm-hmm. And then going from there straight to Purdue, which is a completely opposite. Mm-hmm. But to still have that center uh, made the, um, I guess, the impact of being at a PWI, uh, you know, less extreme. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you, the program. So it was always just a space to go to where you essentially felt like I was back at the HBCU, kind of like student union building, you know, like mm-hmm. how we all would just be hanging out and doing whatever and the performances and stuff like that. It really gave that kind of feel, feel within the PWI, which I really, uh, you know, feels like very important. And, and I didn't, I was never a part of like the ensembles and stuff like that. But I know a lot of you are, but I do appreciate for me, because, you know, I was very active on campus and mm-hmm. even doing things like with BGSA or like protests and stuff like that. And um, the BCC was always a, a space, gave us space to just meet and discuss, right? Mm-hmm. And we're game planning what we wanted to do next or how we wanted to approach certain issues or come have people vent about certain things. Um, even just for that, that kind of like old school, you know, having that space to, to, to organize um, is what I utilize it for a lot of the times too, which was great and have those kind of meetings and and so without that you know who knows what could have um transpired or would not have transpired you know as far as the things we tried to make change because even when she was talking about like the the um the beginnings of the bcc and how the students Mm -hmm. were protesting and came up with their list of demands i was like yeah we was doing the same thing (laughs) i was thinking the same thing like i wrote that down i was like wow that sounds like our time there and for our listeners you know, Ty was like the most like activist, like student on campus. Like he was at the president's office. Like he was, you know, on the footsteps. And yeah, the BCC did provide that space. I remember the, I don't know, I think it was a BGSA uh, program that we uh, put together. But remember, we had that discussion about like the African versus African American experience mm-hmm, at the BCC, mm-hmm. and like the the room was packed, and it was it was a little interesting conversation, I'll say. But you know, it gave us spaces to talk about things like that. Another thing I'll note is you know now being at another campus for graduate school. I realize how unique the Purdue BCC is in the sense that graduate students and undergraduate students were coming together as a community. Um, And that's not the case. Like, so at Harvard, like the graduate and undergraduate experiences are are so um, separated. Like there isn't a space where, you know, on Harvard's campus, we all come together as just black people, regardless of our program or regardless of our like level at the university in terms of like graduate versus undergraduate. And I know I made like amazing connections with like the undergrads at Purdue, you know, still friends, still connected, you know, with them. And that was that was kind of different. Yeah, you're right. You're right. There's not um, even the campus I'm on There's a stream disconnect between graduate students and and undergrads. Um, And yeah, a lot of the black students I knew, um, of course, were black graduate students, but I did know a lot of the black undergrads, too, um, Mm -hmm. from being in the BCC and then then wind up, you know, uh, playing basketball with them in the in the gym and all that kind of stuff and, and then hanging out with them when we go to the local bars, you know, when they became of age and celebrating <laughs> with them. <laughs> it was always fun, <laughs> you know, watching them turn 21 for the first time. Uh-oh, you know, let's go take you to the cactus. Yeah. Uh, fun times. Yeah. Uh, but, but it also, I think, did, um, for a lot of them, especially thinking about it too, just like, what even I didn't have as an undergraduate student, even in a, in a black HBCU, is like, I feel like also we were able to mentor them and guide them 
because I feel like a lot of them took advice from us when they were interested in graduate school or GREs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And they actually had a space where they can actually link up with one of us and, and we can like give them that advice. Like, oh, yeah, this is what you should look at for. This is what you should do when you're deciding on programs and help them with that kind of stuff, which, you know, helps a lot of them get to the next level because I still follow some of them on Facebook. And I've seen a couple now, one or two of them, like accepting into PhD programs and stuff like that, which is like oh, super dope. And I think, um, you know, they just had exposure to us, which could have been tough at other institutions. So, yeah. This, this one last thing, like thinking back to that uh, question about like, why aren't there like white cultural centers and how <laughs> the university context kind of dictates at PWIs that there's a space for, you know, black students on campus to, you know, belong and stuff like that. So I was just like, yo, at your HBCU, are you going to spearhead the white cultural center like, <laughs> or the white center? Like, do they need a space on HBCU campuses? Nah, I think they. I think they'd be alright. <laughs> <laughs> You're not right. They'd be alright, man. They could just step outside the campus and be be home. Um, <laughs> but yeah, nah, it's funny. But yeah, we appreciate you know Miss Miss um coming to take the time to talk with us and shed light on Black cultural centers. We do. They are important, you know, not just from you know what she said, but from Daphne and I's experience, we can definitely attest to the importance of these centers being at a school like Purdue, mm-hmm. um, which you know people revere as being a top public school in the nation and huge school, forty thousand students, and um, for that that space alone really protects and, and helps a lot of students of color who can who probably would feel ostracized or alienated without a space like that. So having it thrive and especially not just existing, but like you said, the, the way it thrives as it does, the experiences, I mean, students were able to go to Ghana. Like that, mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, that is just like, uh, that just says a lot as far as the resources that are put into it and the support behind it. Yes. And a lot of that stems from the leadership of Miss Renee, for sure. Yeah, because that trip was heavily subsidized, like heavily. Like I said, I didn't make it and I'm really sad. But I but that's also like, you know, I, we did, you know, we had a lot of like critiques of Purdue while we were there. Mm-hmm. But when you really think about like everything the BCC is able to do, like, yo, they have a lot of resources and support from the university mm-hmm. and it, like if i ever became a millionaire <laughs> i would i would never give money to purdue but i would definitely give it to the bcc in some capacity make sure that fund that funds go straight to them you know <laughs> you know what's funny i was just i while we were on the uh call with uh miss renee i was actually thinking like oh i'm gonna stop ignoring those emails about giving back <laughs> i'll make sure my gift goes to the <laughs> Yeah, if I can dictate where it goes, I mean, that that's exactly where I wanted to go and, and nowhere else. So hope you listen to Purdue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, thanks, Miss Renee, for co- taking the time to come chat with us. As always, uh, for all our listeners, definitely check out their website. You ever in the area that needs to be a number one stop for sure, because it is probably one of the best or maybe the best black cultural center in the nation. Um, other than that. Follow us on social media if you haven't already, at BHD Podcast. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Visit our website, uh, blackandhollydangerous.com, to keep up all our latest content. We're pretty much on all major platforms when it comes to podcasting, so check us out there. Um, share share us. Uh, well, before you share us, review and rate us on iTunes. That really, really helps us out if you can just drop a, a line or two in a rating. Um, and other than that, share us with your friends, share us with your family, and share us with your enemies. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. 
If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.